Welcome to the Foundations Church Podcast, where we exist to make Jesus famous. We hope this message is life-giving, encouraging, and challenges you in your walk with Christ. So we're going to break up these last... Uh, 12 verses of John into three sections. And so we're going to read John 2, verses 13 through 17. It says this, It was nearly time for the Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes, and he chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle, scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he said, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from Scripture, passion for God's house will consume me. We've got Jesus clearing the temple. I'm sure most of you guys are familiar with this story. This is the first of several confrontations that Jesus has with his opponents. Now, until recently, I thought the word like opponents of God or enemy of God was a weird concept. I thought we were all basically on the same team, just some people weren't playing in the game yet, right? That they were just down at the end of the bench, just, you know, on their phones, and they, they hadn't believed. But um, the, the actual, the idea of being an enemy of God, an opponent of God, um, opposed to the things of God is very biblical. If you look in Romans 5, we see uh, Romans 5.10 that we, at one point, since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. James 4, 4 through 6, you adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I think next week um, we'll, we'll try to look a little bit at that verse because friendship with the world makes us an enemy of God. But God so loved the world that he gave his son. So we're going to have to look at some of the wordplay there. Um, But friendship with the world makes us an enemy of God. I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. What do you think the scriptures mean when they say that the spirit God has placed within us is filled with envy? But he gives us even more grace to stand up uh, against such evil desires. As scriptures say, God opposes. That word opposes literally means to stand in battle against, like Me and Nicole are about to fight like we are opposed. Um, She would destroy me. Um, But God is in opposition to the proud, but favors the humble. Then you look at Philippians 3, 18 and 19. And Paul, you can see the emotion in this passage as Paul is writing in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18. He says, for I have told you often before, and I say it with tears in my eyes, that there are many whose conduct shows they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. So there are opponents, there are enemies, there are people that are opposed to the things of God. And when we're talking about the life of Jesus, this is the first instance where you have these people opposing Jesus that are, that are butting up against the things of God. And it's happening in the clearing of the temple. This is an interesting passage because you've got it happening early. John chapter 2 in the book of John. But in, uh, I believe it's Mark, he's got it happening the week that he's crucified. 
And so some people will say, well, John is taking things out of order, and he's just trying to prove his point by the way he's structuring his book, which it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you think of John's purpose of, of what? What's his purpose? For people to believe. Yeah, we've talked about that several times. John's book is written so that we may believe, and by believing, we have life by the power of his name. I believe that's John 20, 31. And, and so it would make sense that if this just happened at the end of Jesus' life, John would keep it there. And so it really, from my studying and looking into this and reading to other people, there's a, a pretty well-accepted um, consensus that this didn't just happen once, that it happened twice. Um, the instances are a little bit different. Um, some of the phrasing's a little bit different. Um, you, you, the, the situation's different. But also, with it happening twice in the, in the book of John, doesn't it kind of go hand in hand with the way that the people viewed Jesus? Like at the time, the, the religious leaders, they didn't, they didn't think his claims were valid. They didn't think he was the son of God. They thought he was a heretic. They thought he was a criminal. They thought he deserved to die. So you've got this guy coming in, clearing the temple. All right, we'll wait for him to leave. And then what? Maybe the next day, the next year, they're setting things back up like it normally was. I mean, let's, let's take it to a personal level. How many times have we been convicted of sin? We've repented. God, I'll never do that again. And the next week, what are we doing? Same thing, right? And so it's not just really possible. It's very probable um, that Jesus actually did this twice, um, which, which goes to show just what that, the disciples saw, that the passion for God's house wasn't just a one and done thing, but it was a, a constant thing that burned in his life. Um, wh- let me ask you guys this. Why is, why is it a busy time in the temple at this moment when Jesus is clearing it? What's that? Say loud. It's right. It's in the Bible. It's, not, it's Passover. Yes. So it's Passover, uh, the, the week of Passover. It's time for the Passover celebration. So you have Jews coming from all over Israel, all over the area, traveling a long distance um, these are devout men who are coming not to sightsee. They're not coming just to hang out. They're coming to worship. They're coming to offer sacrifices for one of the uh, holiest days in the, the Jewish calendar, which is the Passover. We've talked about it before. We talked about it in John 1 when John says, Behold the Lamb of God. You see the significance of the Passover lamb that was used as the, it was like the final straw for Pharaoh as God um, sent the angel to, to kill the firstborn, but whoever had the lamb's blood on their doorpost lived. And, and so it's a very significant uh, holiday. Uh, James said, or John, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, this, this connection to Passover is very specific, very intentional, very um, important as we look at it in the, the Jewish uh, um, history, but also in the life of Christ as far as what this means. So there are a lot of people that are coming up to Israel. In fact, any, any devout Jewish male over the age of 12 is coming to offer sacrifices. Um, and, and I don't know about you, if you've ever traveled with children, um, I, I feel like me and my wife pack up half of our home whenever we're taking our two-year-old somewhere. It's insane. We still haven't mastered it. And so imagine being a, a Jewish family using a camel or a donkey or whatever kind of animal you're using that you're putting your belongings on, that you're making this trip, you're not driving to Oklahoma City for the day, that you're making a trip, a several-day journey, and you've got all these belongings, 
And now you've got, oh man, okay, now I've got to add a, a bull, now I've got to add a sheep, now I've got to add dove, and I've got to add the, keep the things to keep them fed and keep them healthy and make sure that they meet the requirements for the sacrifice. It's just one other thing that I've got to bring with me. But not only that, there's also a temple tax that every Jewish man over the age of 20 is required to pay. And you read it in Exodus chapter 30, verse 13 through 14. We've got it on the screen. Just so you know, it says, each person who is counted must give a small piece of silver as a sacred offering to the Lord. This payment is half a shekel based on the sanctuary shekel, which equals 20 geras. All who reach their 20th birthday must give the sacred offering to the Lord. So what you've got going on here is you have a lot of people at the temple. You've got people traveling from all over the place. People who... Um, are having to exchange their money for a specific type of money that meets um, the, the, the purity requirements. So it'd be like me if, if when we took up our offering, it's like, hey, we only take $20 gold coins from Birch Gold or whatever. I don't know. Like, and so it's like, I, all I have is this $20 bill. And like, with well, the $20 bill is too dirty. We need gold, and, but it's worth $20. And so people are exchanging their money to get the specific coinage. There are... Um, there are animals available to buy. Now, when we're reading this, we just kind of read it and we're like, oh my gosh, what's going on? They're just, they're, they're, it's just a marketplace. But here's what they're doing. The, the, the idea is good. The idea is good. And what I mean by that is them buying sacrifices in Jerusalem is fine. Like that's not, that's not an issue. They're like, all right, we don't, we don't want to bring our bull. We don't want to bring our lamb. We don't want to bring that stuff. That's fine. Um, It's convenient. They're making it easy for people to worship. Um, They've got the money changers there um, providing a service so people can give according. They're they're doing what they need to do so people can do what they're supposed to do. People are supposed to sacrifice and give. Well, you've got people that are willing to sell animals that meet the sacrificial requirements. Perfect. That's fine. You've got people who are uh, exchanging money so they can give in accordance with the law. That's all great. The problem comes with the manner in which they do it and the location in which they do it. So, so let's talk about how they are conducting their business. When it comes to the actual selling of the sacrifices, that's not the issue. What they were doing was they were making hay while the sun was shining. They knew it was, it was Disney during the summer. They're like, let's jack up the ticket prices. Let's jack up the food prices. We've got people here. Let's make sure that these sacrifices aren't fair, like a fair price, but that they, we're going to make some money. We're, business is good. Business is booming, right? And so they're making sure that they get their cuts. Not what's fair, but what's profitable. Um, the, the money exchangers, they're not giving dollar for dollar. How, how am I going to feed my family for that? They're charging these exorbitant interest rates and exchange rates for the coinage. And so um, religion had become this materialistic chance for them to make money. And so the practice in and of itself was fine. The manner in which they conducted it was gross. If you remember, maybe after 9-11, like gas stations started jacking up the prices of gas, and they were gouging people on the prices. That's what they were doing. They were gouging people on the sacrifices. They were gouging people on the interest rates for the coinage. Now, that would have been bad enough. But now let's look at the location. Um, where was this taking place? In the, in the temple. Specifically, the outer courts. Specifically, the, 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 the courts of the Gentiles where the non-ethnic Jews were able to, like those who had converted Judaism but weren't born into Jew, uh, Jewish culture, weren't born into the ethnicity, where those people were worshiping. Um, 
And so it was taking place in the church. Um, I don't know about how you guys conduct your business, but I know here at Foundation Church, um, when it comes to our Friends Days, when it comes to things like that, we know who's coming into the church, right? We know if, hey, if we have somebody that's saying, hey, we want to come, you know, talk about blah, blah, blah. Like, we don't have people just wander in and set up a booth in the foyer. We know what's going on. And so the temple authorities had to have signed off on this. You're not having people just wander in and set up shop. You're not having all of this happen just by, oh, where, where are they coming from, right? Like, it's, it's an orchestrated, planned out, thought out thing. Um, I want us to do something. I think FC Kids is kind of quiet. Um, you know, one of our prayers was that, you know, we want to pray for Foundations Church. And so I just want us to take a few moments. Um, and we had music playing. I just want us to be still. Um, I want everyone just to bow your heads, um, just close your eyes. This is kind of out of, out of sorts. Um, but let's just take some time and just pray for Foundations Church, pray for the people of Foundations Church. Time concentrating is a little little difficult time. Is that kind of weird to have to pray with that going on in the background? Yeah, yeah. I think you get the picture. Please. You can turn that off. I think you get the picture. Here's what's happening: the temple had been turned into a place where people were no longer able to concentrate, where they weren't able to be still. They weren't able to offer their prayers to God in a manner where they could wholeheartedly give themselves to God. They're trying to pray with that. They're trying to pray with that going on in the background. They're trying to pray with cows mooing, with sheep bleeding, with people. What, what do you mean that's how much the cow costs? I can get a cow just like this for half the price at home. Come on. It's like all this is going on in the temple, and there is, there is no reverence for the house of God. And so what happens is Jesus isn't just mad that there's animals in the church, He's mad of, uh, of what's happening, that they are causing such a commotion that people are unable to worship in the manner that, that God deserves. Uh, so the, the Psalm 69.9 comes to the disciples' mind, passion for his house consumes me. Jesus was angry, and he drove the people out because the reverence and awe of God's house was being desecrated, and that a, a holy God demands holy worship. That, that, a, that a holy, perfect, set-apart God cannot be dragged down into um, the profiteering off of religion, off of, um, you know, just, hey, it's a, it's a good opportunity for us to make money, and that they are, are diminishing the house of God. The temple wasn't made to be a marketplace. It was made to be a place where people came and met with God. And so, so when we come into church, we should come in with glad hearts, enter his courts with thanksgiving in our hearts, enter his courts with praise, absolutely. But our heart should also be in a posture of awe and respect for who God is. So we're going to kind of look at this just a little bit, because if it's significant enough for Jesus to do it twice, then I think it's significant enough for us to kind of look at what that looks like for us today. So Hebrews 4.16 says this. Um, it says, let us come, let me hear 
So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There will we receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. How many of you guys have heard that verse? Let us come boldly before the throne of God. Now, yes, come boldly. Yes, come confidently that we are his children, that we um, belong to him, that he's adopted us into our family. But coming before God boldly does not mean that we come before him with a nonchalant, carefree, la-la-la attitude. Um, I love my son. Uh, I hope that as he grows up, he knows that he can come to me for anything, that, I, that he can trust me, that I love him, that I want the best for him, that, that I'm there to help him. But the moment he comes before me with disrespect, the moment he comes before me, the moment he comes into my house treating it like it's his own little playpen and just destroying the walls, I'm, be, I'm saying, get the belt. Get the belt. And that's what Jesus does because Jesus makes a whip. He didn't have a whip. You know, he's not, he, he makes a whip. He, he takes time. How many of you guys have ever typed out an email? Like, and then you think about it, all right, and you delete it. Jesus had time. He's making the whip. He's making, fashioning a whip. He had time to process what he was doing, and the passion for God's house was still like, yep, it's still there. Yep, still, just tighten this, let's speed this thing up. Like, he knew what he was doing. Um, and and I, I, we, we've got to be careful when it comes to our attitude as we enter the church. And I talked to our staff about this, and it seems that a lot of churches— um, in an effort to reach the loss, they've built this bridge, right? And they think the bridge is one way. It's a one-way street, that I'm going to be the influencer. And very rarely we understand that the bridge is a two-way street. And, and we, we stop being the influencer and we become the influencee. And what I mean by that is that we, in, in, a, in a way to reach the lost, which is a, the noblest of causes, if you look at it, what the people in the, the temple were doing was probably a noble cause, right? We want to make it easy for people to worship. We want to make it easy for people to come, to, to come and get their sacrifices. But in an attempt to do that, they crossed the line of, of what dishonored God's house. And so as we um, build this bridge to reach the lost, a lot of times what we'll do is we will water down the gospel and we will say, we'll say things um, we'll leave out, you know, the talking about sin. We'll leave out talking about God's judgment. We'll leave out um, the talk about hell because that stuff's not appealing. Um, it turns people off. And, and what we do, like Galatians 1, Paul talks about, he says, I'm, I'm astonished with how quickly you've turned to another gospel. And any other gospel is, is no gospel at all. Even if it's half of the gospel, it's no gospel at all. And so you'll see a lot of these clips um, of these well-known, huge megachurch pastors who are talking about the goodness and the love of God, and they get a lot of likes because they don't talk about the, the offending part of the gospel. And, and, and if we're not careful, when we take away the sting and the offense of the gospel, we take away its power. And so we say, hey, God loves you and he wants the best for you. Just let him in your life. Why? Like, I've got a pretty good life. And, and we, we disrespect and honor what Christ did. And we minimize in an attempt, a very noble attempt, don't get me wrong, to reach the lost. And so we've got to be very mindful that as we come into the church, two things, that we, we have the awe and respect that the word of God, that the holy God, that, that, that he deserves, but also that as we are reaching the lost, that we present the whole counsel of God, the whole word of God, the whole gospel, because Part of the gospel is no gospel at all. And Pastor Justin will say it. We can't pick and choose what we want to take out of the Bible. 
right? We can't, oh, I like this, and I, uh, you either like it all and accept it all, or you accept just part of it, which is just a feel-good message that, that makes us all want to be happy and good. I've had people tell me that in their prayers. They're just like, hey, God, super flowy, and, you know, Jesus said what? Hallowed be thy name, right? That your name is revered, that it's respected. I've had people tell me that they, they cuss in their prayers. Man, I just want to be real with God. God can handle your emotions, but your disrespect, man, if you want to talk about the way that Jesus looks at that, he, got, he made a whip and pulled people, like, drew, drove people out of the temple. If you want to take it to the real extreme, read 1 Samuel, I think it's 12, with Eli and his sons, where they were totally desecrating the house of God. They were priests. They were working in the church, and, and, and uh, they didn't live very long. Like, God, it's not a matter of preference. It's a matter of our posture and that we have to make sure that our posture is one of awe. Philippians 2.12 says, Dear friends, you've always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I'm away, it's even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. Some passage, some translations will say, um, uh, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This isn't a a works-based salvation. It's an appeal that we actively pursue obedience in the act of sanctification, the act of holiness, that we are obeying God, that we are actively trying to obey God, and our attitude is one of fear of offending a holy and perfect God, but also one of deep respect. And so we've got to have this balance as we enter God's kingdom, as we enter God's, God's building, God's church. Um, Romans 12, I was thinking about this. It said, uh, my dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to offer your body as a living sacrifice. This is the true way to worship God, that we... We die to our preferences. We die to what we want, that we offer our body as a living sacrifice. People are coming to the temple to offer sacrifices to God. Now, what do we do? We offer ourselves as sacrifices. And that is truly the way to worship God. And so we've got to do that um, in a way that, that has a, a healthy reverence and fear and respect of God. Um, so we've got to make sure that, uh, that we keep that in mind. It was a big deal for Jesus, big enough that he, uh, that he made a whip and drove people out of the temple. So I think it's something that we should keep in mind as well as we are worshiping God. Um, the next section is John chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. It says, but the Jewish leaders demanded, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What? They exclaimed, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Um, Man, if you want to see spiritual blindness, look at, at their response to Jesus right here. Right? They're asking for a sign. Jesus is... And I don't want to read too much in the scriptures, but um, if they were just like stop and look around and see that there's no more animals, like see the the money changers like picking up their coins, like hurry up and scurrying away, that that God's house has been restored to what it was originally intended to be, that uh, what they had signed off on was now gone, that all that stuff, you want to sign? Listen to this. Oh, you don't hear anything? You don't hear the cows? You don't hear the sheep? You don't hear the people bartering? There's your sign. If I didn't have authority, you think those people would have let me do what I did? If I didn't have authority, do you think that me, one dude, would have been able to push all these people out of here and these animals? 
Like, you, you, okay, all right, okay, spiritual blindness, check number one, yep, you can't see anything. Spiritual blindness number two, show us a sign. Okay, uh, destroy this temple and I'll build it again in three days. What do they go to? They're looking around and like, are you kidding me? This thing, this temple, no way. It's taken 46 years to build. Some translations, when you read it in the Greek, um, read more like this temple has been under construction for 46 years. And we've got a timeline of the, of the, the temple. So the, the Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. The, uh, the Israelites were taken into captivity. They returned from exile. You can read in Ezra that they rebuilt the temple and it was completed in 516 And then Herod the Great started this restoration expansion project in around 20 AD. Took about 10 years to complete that. But even when Jesus was there, there were still construction projects going on. And it wasn't fully finished even as it was destroyed in 70 AD. And so it was kind of like the Turner Turnpike. Like it's, it, was, it was always like something was always being done. And so they're, they're like, it's been under construction for almost half a century. And you say you're going to rebuild it in three days. Like, tell me you, you don't know God. You, you're the priest, and you know the scriptures, you know the prophecies, and you don't know who this guy is. Talk about spiritual blindness. He's not talking about the temple, though, is he? He's talking about his physical body. And James, I was going to ask you some questions, but um, John kind of ruins it by giving you the answers in verse 21 and 22. So he's talking about his body that once his broken body has been restored after the resurrection, that's what he's talking about. That we know when Jesus um, dies, that the old, temp, old way of doing things is done, right? The, the, the curtain where God's presence, the, the, the Holy of Holies, the curtains was split in half. And, and so they're like, oh, that's where God's presence was. But now what happens? The Holy Spirit indwells us, the believers. And now we are the church. Christ is the head of the church. So you want to talk about rebuilding a temple, man, each and every one of us are the temple of God. We have his spirit living in us. Jesus is like, hey, you want to, you want to see my power on full display. They're thinking he's like this master, you know, construction guy, you know, Bob the builder, can we build it? Yes, we can. Jesus is like, you want to see something impressive? Like, go ahead and, and kill me and go ahead and, and tear me down and see what happens on the third day. See my power be unleashed as I defeat death, hell, and the grave. <clears throat> and so you read in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, Paul tells us this. He says, so now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together, we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We carefully joined him together becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Not the old way of doing things. And if you guys read this, um, if you read this passage with his clearing of the temple in relationship to what he did at the wedding of Cana, you kind of see this new thing that he is doing. And then we'll get into John 3 with this new birth. You've got a new wine. You've got a new temple. You've got a new birth. He's kind of pulling the curtain back and saying, I am about to do a new thing. You see, Pastor Sammy did a great job a couple of weeks ago talking about the wedding at Cana. And Jesus had these, these pots, these, these stone pots that were used for purification um, that they had to go through to wash themselves and be um, clean according to the law. And he said, fill those up. And they're like, all right. So they filled them up. And he doesn't use the water to purify them. He turns the water into wine. They're like, great. 
Now we got to purify the pot so they can be used for the purification process again. Then we got to put water and purify the water so everyone can be purified. It's like, so what have you done, Jesus? You've messed up these pots. The water turns the wine. They consume the water. There's no more water in the pots. In, Mark, uh, in, in Matthew 9, Jesus talks about a new wine that's coming that can't be contained in the old wineskin. He said, I've come to fulfill the old Testament, the old covenant, and I'm doing a new thing. And what I'm doing in the new thing isn't going to fit in the old way of doing things. A new wine is going to bust the old wineskin wide open. And so it's got to be in something new. And, and you look at in, in this as he is talking about building up a temple. He's not talking about building up the old temple, the old way of doing things. He's talking about fulfilling all that that uh, entailed in the Old Testament and doing something new. And, and next week, we're going to talk about this new birth that we are supposed to experience. And so he's showing that, hey, this old thing is coming to a close. Jesus would preach, you know, we, we, we always talk about Jesus just love people right where they are. He would preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This old way of doing things is coming to a close. And he's giving us a peek behind the curtain in John 2 through the wedding and through the temple clearing that there's a new thing that's about to happen. And you've got something really interesting in the last couple of verses of John 2. It says this. It says, Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust them because he knew human nature. No one needed to tell him what mankind is really like. Uh, I just had you guys read John 1 and 2. One, so you could kind of remember the wedding feast, I hope you guys, or the wedding um, party. Uh, how does John 1 start out? Anyone just shout it out. There we go. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was with God. We established in week one that Jesus is the Word, right? John's just talking about Jesus. This Jesus has been there since the, the dawn of time, since the, before the dawn of time. He's, he's been there. So quick rundown of the Old Testament with a lot of things missing and a really terrible job. But there's, there'll be no test on this at the end. Um, God creates man. Man sins. God kicks him out of the garden. Uh, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. Uh, you fast forward a little bit. Population grows. They get super wicked. God floods the earth, saves everyone, or kills everyone, saves Noah and his family. Cool. All right. Great start. Noah and his family are like, all right, let's take it easy here. Um, Noah gets drunk and his son, and like, it's like immediately, it's like, what have you done? Um, fast forward several years. Uh, Israelites are in slavery for 400 years. God rescues them in this miraculous and crazy way that only he can do. Um, they they are, are leaving Egypt. And they come to the Red Sea and they're like, we should have stayed in Egypt. Like you just left Egypt, right? What are you doing? So they cross the Red Sea. They they, they are heading towards the promised land. They're, they're on this journey that shouldn't take real long, and they start complaining and griping. God provides. They start complaining about the people in the promised land after they've seen God. This is the same group of people that have seen God rescue them from the, Israel, or from the Egyptians. So don't like, think it's a totally different group of people. They, they've very familiar, right? It's like, oh man, what did God do? I don't know. Remember last Tuesday when he like killed all the Egyptians? Yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, but they start complaining that he's not going to come through and that the promised land people are too strong. And he's like, what? Okay. You know what? This generation done with you. You're not going to get to see the promised land. They enter the promised land in a, an awesome way. Walls of Jericho fall. Yay, God, you're awesome. You think they'd be like, have their mindset right, head, head on the right shoulders, right? No. 
They start down this downward cycle. And so God raises up these judges that will rescue them and and put them back on the right track. And and so they get right with God, but then it's just a continual downward spiral. They they fall away from God. Another judge comes up and they, yay, God, and they fall away. And so then they're like, hey, God, all these other countries that don't love you and and hate you and are opposed to you, they have kings. We want a king too. Uh, All right, Saul, not a great king. He's okay. I mean, but he had some pretty major character flaws. David, awesome. Yay, thumbs up. Character flaws, but did some big things, expanded the kingdom. Um, Solomon, great, expanded the kingdom even more, built the temple, had some fall-offs. Then after that, it's like this downward spiral of, of, of down, down, down. You have these flashes of, of hope, but then down, down, down. These prophets yelling to people, turn around, turn around. They don't like it. They kill the prophets. They ignore them. Babylonians come. Jesus is front row witnessing all of this, seeing human nature time and time and time again, see the goodness and glory of God, and then turn to something else because they get tired, because they don't, things aren't going their way. And so you read this passage in John 2, where it says, they began to trust him, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew human nature. He had seen it from the course of the moment man stepped on earth. He had seen the human heart and human condition turn away from God. Come to him and celebrate when things are good and turn away when things are bad. And so he says, they trusted him, but he didn't trust them. You read Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord to me will enter the kingdom of heaven. These people are like, yay, Jesus. And what's he say? He goes, only those who do the will of my father enter. I'm going to say to them, I don't know you. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? But I, the Lord, search all hearts and examine secret motives. I give all people their due rewards according to what their actions deserve. Follow your heart. The human heart is wicked and evil. Listen to your heart. Why? Why? Jesus knew what their hearts were. He knew what the condition of mankind was, and he knew what the individual hearts were. Like he knew. He didn't have to have the story. You look at John 12, and the crowd cheered Jesus on because he was doing miracles. This is as he's coming, entering the Passion Week, cheering him on, doing, doing miracles. But it goes on in John 12 to say they wanted to be around him, but they didn't believe in him. And you've got John 19 where the crowd is shouting what? Crucify him. It's a week. Look at this cool guy. He's healing people and doing these things. Oh, yeah, kill him. Yeah, let's do that. Human heart is desperately wicked. No one needs to tell Jesus what it was like. In these two verses, you get a, the, the, a very subtle um, contrast of, of the biblical view of belief. Um, the same Greek word is used, but there's a difference. Uh, we talked about it. John's big theme is belief, um, which comes out of the root word of like faith. And so the crowd pistuoed in Greek, which is they had faith in Jesus, but Jesus did not pistuo the crowd. He did not have faith in them. And so there's a difference here. Some translations say Jesus did not entrust him. He did not connect himself to the crowd. They, they believed because they saw some cool things, not because there was a change in their hearts. They believed because they had seen Jesus heal their brother, not because they truly believed who he was. And so Jesus didn't entrust himself. He didn't connect himself to them. It shows that there is a very much of a difference. It's not just a scene, but it's a believing. It's, it's, a, it's a wholehearted lifetime commitment of following Jesus. That through the good, through this celebration, and through the troubles, Jesus is like, 
hey, you want to you wanna be my disciple? Cool. Do you want to follow me when it costs you everything? You want to be my disciple? Cool. Do you, do you want to give up everything you have? You want to be my disciple? Cool. Do you want to pick up your cross? Do right? you want to be my disciple when I'm healing people, but do you want to be my follower when I'm condemned as a criminal to execution? Like, what, what, do you, what are we doing here? And so they believe, but Jesus was like, I don't know you. I don't know you. Matthew 10, 37 through 39 says, if you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you love your son or daughter more than me, excuse me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you're not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you'll find it. You see the difference there. See the difference there. Big difference. Yay, Jesus in the good times. Yay, when he's parting the Red Seas. Yay, when he's, he's giving us raises and bonuses. And yay, when he's doing all this stuff. And what's it look like when we have to pick up our cross? And that's the difference. That's the difference. Let's pray. God, we come for you tonight. God, and thank you for your word. God, we thank you that uh, you have spoken to us through your word, that you revealed your character through your word. God, and I pray that we would just grow to know you. God, that we would grow to understand you as best as we can. God, you are an incredible and awesome God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope that you enjoyed this message. If you have any questions or want to reach out to us, you can email us at info at foundationschurch.tv or visit our website at foundationschurch.tv.